The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Well, again, if you're just joining us, uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, then uh, I want to let you know we've been going through a series called The Thrill of Hope. The Thrill of Hope. It's been our Advent series, and what we've been looking at is, is the source of our hope is Christ. The source of our hope is Christ. And so we're concluding this series this morning by looking at the fruits of hope, and we're also going to be kind of visiting some of the things that we've talked about throughout the course of the last few weeks. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to these texts, or also they'll uh, be on the screen behind me as well. I'm going to kind of do something different. I've got three separate texts to look at, so um, uh, you can look at the screen behind me for these. So we're first going to go to Colossians 1, Colossians 1, verses 1 through 8. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Apophis, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And then in 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9, it says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And then lastly, in 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 10, it says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, beloved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Grass withers, flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we pray now in the few moments that we have to look at your word, God. I pray that we would allow it to come into our hearts, to go into those places that we're, we're keeping secrets where we don't think the gospel should go. God, and out of this, we pray the most that you would receive glory through it, God. We thank you for your mercies that are new to us each and every morning. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, how can I change? It's a question that we're all fascinated with, 
this time of year, right? Not just this time of year, but, but any, especially as we're about to tomorrow, many of us take New Year's resolutions. And it's something that even in things like movies, I think we kind of love when we see a character do, do a major shift. And kind of the joke is I don't preach a sermon anymore without giving an Avengers reference, so I've got one for us right this morning. From uh, the movie Thor, one of my favorites. In this movie, uh, Thor is introduced as this arrogant and selfish character, prideful, just, just not, not, a, not a noble guy. And then throughout the course of the movie, he does this, this 180 shift as he sees that his selfishness and, and pride, what it does to the people that he loves. And the rest of the movies, any kind of moving the Avengers series that comes out, that Thor is different. He actually has this permanent change about him. We only see him as this arrogant, prideful guy the first, like, 20 or 30 minutes of the first movie. And I think we like seeing things like this. And the reason why, unfortunately, is that we so rarely see it today, don't we? We ourselves desperately want to change so many things about ourselves. We try and we say, this time it's going to be different, right? That diet's going to stick. That lifestyle change is going to stick. That day-to-day routine I'm going to go through is going to stick. And then the inevitable happens that it seems like we just kind of reset to our default selves. And the reason for this is, is what we've been preaching about this Advent series is that we have the wrong source for our hope. You see, hope in and of itself actually can do kind of a a good job at at bringing about, at least at first, change. We have the hope, if you go on a diet, you have the hope of being a a healthier person. If you make a lifestyle change or a a new everyday commitment, you you picture the kind of person that you want to be, and you have hope that that will change. But here's the reality. If you are looking to anything other than Christ as your source, hope is nothing more than wishful thinking. Here's a, stat, a sad statistic for us. Do you know that according to Forbes, 8% of people keep their New Year's resolutions? 8%. That's how bad we are at sticking with change. And that's not even taking into account looking at that 8% and seeing if they stick with it the next year, right? That's just that one-year spell that we say that they keep. We're, we're terrible at it. But here's the good news. Enough doom and gloom. I'm here today to tell you that because of this source of hope that you have, you are changing. Hear that. That is the biggest thing I want you to get across from this as we close this series, that you are changing, that this gospel of hope, having Christ as your source, actually really produces long-lasting change throughout the course of your life. And we're going to see it in three ways this morning, that it produces joy, that it produces love, and that it produces endurance that you will be more loving, more joyful, and have more endurance because of this gospel of light and the source of hope that is in you. And so there are three points this morning. So our first text we read in Colossians 1, uh, Paul was writing to this church in Colossae because he heard how they were doing, had a good report, and this report basically says this, I heard that you're loving one another because of the gospel of hope, through the gospel Good job. A lot of times when Paul starts writing a letter, he kind of has one of two different directions. Either he's trying to correct some kind of big truth that that the people are misunderstanding or or missing of the gospel, or Paul says, I'm so thankful you're doing it, you're getting it. And, And the second part is what he's saying in this text. He's saying, you're loving each other well. The gospel of hope is producing in you what it actually 
should. But notice Paul doesn't just say a general love from that text. What does he say? He actually says that you have a love for the saints. What this means is that once the Colossians heard this source of hope, that they actually had a specific, unique, unconditional love for the saints, which that, that word saints is just another term for believer in the New Testament. And Paul anticipates something fascinating in our text here. Paul knows that the human heart, if motivated by anything other than the source of Christ, will just use that hope to benefit themselves. Paul knows in another way that if you hope in something other than Christ, then your relationship and any interactions you have will be about cultivating on that hope that you're misplacing for Christ. I'm sure Paul was familiar with this type of fake love people have, right? That love that, that you think, you don't genuinely love me, you're, you're trying to get something out of this. And Paul says the reason why he's confident that they actually have a love for one another is because they have a hope laid up for them in heaven. That's what's driving their love for one another. And so for us to really understand what this means, we have to ask ourselves this. What is it about the hope laid up for us in heaven that can cause us to treat each other selflessly and unconditionally with love. Again, what is it about the hope laid up for us in heaven that causes us to treat each other selflessly and unconditionally with love? There's two reasons. The first one, I think, is that when you realize the heavenly inheritance that you have stored up for you, you're compelled to stop using people as a means to an end for your own idols, and you're free to simply love them. That our hearts can declare that our greatest desire uh, to put in view uh, something outside of this hard and dark world has already been achieved. So then it frees us to simply have people come into our lives and to say, I'm not trying to get anything out of this relationship other than I simply want to love you. There's often this discussion in theological circles, and it goes like this. What should be the true motivation for actually enforcing Christ-centered change. For me to, to really try to, to hit home to someone, what should I tell them in order to try to bring about change, otherwise kind of known as sanctification? And some people would say that it's only the cross of Christ, that, that you look back thousands of years ago, you think about what he did, and then that is what motivates you for change, to look more like Christ. And then others would say that, no, 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 it's only future grace. It's only thinking about the hope laid up for you in heaven that is going to motivate the believer for holy living. And here's the reality. It, it has to be both. Those two aren't mutually exclusive at all. Kind of an illustration I thought of for this is uh, when I was getting ready to go to Clemson, I uh, realized that I was short of the, the rest of the funds that I needed. I had part of it covered, uh, but I still was, was missing a lot of money in order to be able to pay for college. And so I'll never forget, I, I got a call one day from the financial aid office uh, from Clemson, and they just simply said a grant had come in for me, something I'd applied for, and it fully covered that, the exact amount that I was missing for my Clemson tuition. Just like that, I got to go to college. And I'll never forget, I, literally right after that, I got in my car, I don't remember where I was going, and, and like two minutes later, someone cut me off. L like the kind of cutting off that you're like, that was so deliberate, I don't understand how you didn't do that on purpose. I mean, it was just so intentional. I've never been in an accident, but that was the closest I've ever come to being in an accident. And still to this day, honestly, my response shocks me. You know what my response was? I didn't care. I, I honestly didn't care. I, I didn't have anger towards that person. And I often think back 
to what happened. I really think it was two things. It was the present and it was the future. It was that someone gave me a gift that I, that I so desperately needed. and It was credited to my account. And I was so thankful for it that it was enough to actually uh, overshadow and cover any hint of anger I would have to someone that almost ended my life with their car. But at the same time, right, when I was driving, I'm thinking about Clemson. I'm thinking about this amazing experience I'm about to be able to go have. And so it was that future that also motivated me as well. It's both. It can't be separate. There's not just one. It's both. When you think about how to be more loving, how to treat each other more loving, it is both thinking back to the cross of Christ that has fully paid for your sins. And at the same time, think of glory. Think of heaven. Think about one day what that's actually going to be like. And suddenly it makes the trials and things that we're going through in this life seem at least insignificant so that when we go through them, so that when we have that opportunity to choose to either love or hate someone, we are so motivated by a past and a future reality that we have a love that looks foolish to the rest of the world. That's the first, but here's the second reason why this motivates us. I think this hope causes believers to love one another because it reminds us that when we talk and live amongst the believer, we are talking and living amongst someone else whose sins have been paid for and has the righteousness of Christ, right? Think about what this looks like. You, as a Christian, have been forgiven of all your sin. All of your record has been wiped clear, and when God the Father looks at you, he sees the perfection and the righteousness of his Son. But here's often where we don't take it. That means that the believer sitting in the chair next to you, if they're trusting in Christ, the way that God the Father sees them is with the perfection and righteousness of his son. And so guess how you should see that person? You probably see where this is going. With the perfection and righteousness of his son. It frees us to be able to say, I so understand that God has forgiven me, that the reason I can love this other saint is because they've had that same forgiveness that I have, that they are seen as perfect in God's sight, and that's what motivates us to love one another. Hopefully this starts... This is kind of sounding familiar to you. At this point in our church life, we've introduced uh, several different uh, pillars, so to speak, that our church wants to be about. And one of these is the idea of deep community. Deep community. Now, I'm going to make an assumption for everyone sitting right now. I'm sorry if this isn't true of you, but I really do think it is. When I talk about deep community, when I talk about the love that the Colossians had from one another, all of us are craving that. All of us want that actual love from the rest of us, right? And I'm not saying that as an indictment on our church, because me as your pastor, but also as a Christian in this church, that is what I want from all of you. To have a church that looks like the Colossians, where they are so motivated by what Christ did and what he is doing, that it changes every interaction they have. It changes the way that you deal with conflict with one another, it changes the response that you have if someone comes to you and says, I need help. It changes everything. And so the question for us with this before we move on is what does that look like, right? The application for this is always hard because we get so motivated by, yes, I want to love one another, but what would this look like? And there's a lot of different ways we could take this, but I'm just going to leave you with one. Does the love that you're, have, you're having for one another cost you something? Does the love that you're having for one another, cost you something. When you think about 
your resources. And so often when we kind of talk about this, people think that we're just talking about finances. And certainly that could include this, but I'm talking about so much more. I'm talking about God has equipped you with certain things. And you have a responsibility to see how you can bless the kingdom of God with these things. So does someone need you to invite them out for a cup of coffee so that they can spend an hour and share their story with you, share their struggles, hear what's going on in their lives? Does that couple two rows back that you've met maybe a few times need you to invite them over for dinner because they've been coming to our church for 10 months and they've never once spent time with someone outside of these walls? You see, love does cost us something if you're truly going to do it. It's going to cost you your resources. It could cost you your time. It could cost you your normal weekly routine that could get thrown off because of entering the life of someone. Or how about this? If you know that someone's in a place of hurting, this is the hardest one, I think, for us to go. We know that, like, I'm here emotionally, and I see where you are. And so for me to pour into you, it's going to take me down here. It's going to cost me my affections. It's going to cost me my, my mental happiness for the day. Because if I enter into your mess, it means that God is calling me to be empathetic with you, and I'd rather keep my normal feelings right now. Love costs us something, but here's the thing to understand. The cross of Christ, the hope laid out for you in heaven, is enough to cover this cost. And so I don't want to be confusing, because I said that these are things that are true about the believer. This is something that both I'm saying you have as Christians, that you are loving, but I'm also saying at the same time, it's a challenge to prayerfully consider how God can equip us to be more loving from this text. Because once you start to do this, it brings about a second change, which is our second point from First Peter. It brings about us to be more joyful. It brings us about to be more joyful. The text says, it's short, so I'll read it again. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What that means is that joy, true biblical Christian joy, that Peter's talking about here, is something only a Christian, someone who has experienced the hope of Christ, can actually have. So I want to give credit where credit is due. This, this part and, and uh, this next point I'm indebted to John Piper. Uh, I would encourage you, if you enjoy this series on hope, John Piper has, has a list of different topics and uh, through his ministry, Desiring God. So you can go on his website, and he has some great material on this idea of hope. But he introduces this, this idea of hope as saying that it's not an act of willpower. And he says this about it, about the text in 1 Peter. It says, First, Christian joy is not an act of willpower, but a spontaneous emotional response of the heart. Christian joy has this in common with all joy, whether Christian or not. When Peter speaks in 1 Peter 1 of rejoicing with inexpressible joy in anticipation of our final salvation, he is not describing a decision, he is describing an explosion. You can decide to brush your teeth or get an allergy shot, but you cannot decide in the same way, decide to rejoice. You can decide to do things that may bring you joy, drive to the country, visit a friend, read a psalm, but whether joy actually happens is not in your power the way many other acts are. It may or may not be there. What he is saying is that this level of joy filled with glory, the kind of joy that comes from our hoping in Christ, is different than simply choosing 
to respond to something. He's saying it's so deep and so firm that it's less of a choice and it's more of a gift. And you know that. Joy is, is the gift of the Spirit. And in fact, John Piper uh, was talking about this and says that he can understand what Peter was talking about. John Piper's uh, mother was tragically taken from this earth in a bus accident in Israel when John Piper was just 28 years old. And he, was, he wrote something referring to this. He says, I wept more than I ever had. But it was not as those who have no hope. Deep beneath the turbulence on the surface of my life, there was a strong current of confidence and joy that all was well in the hands of a sovereign God. Wow. That's what this level of joy allowed him to cling to. Notice he doesn't talk about he woke up every day screaming and and excited. It was a hard time. But at the surface, because he had Christ as a source of, of his joy, there was an underlying confidence that said, whatever is taken away from me, it doesn't matter because I cling to the cross of Christ. And that was his source of hope. So here, an application question for us. And this is a hard question to ask, I admit it. Do you have that level of joy? Do you have this level of Christ-centered joy that whatever happens, you truly know that everything will be okay because of Christ on the cross? it's appropriate to ask, and I'm not trying to scare you into saying you're not a Christian if, if you're not joyful, but I think it's important to investigate, to say, this, this, this joy, is this actually what I have? So here's a test question for you to try to get there. Does the joy that you have for Christ come from having Christ himself, or does it come from the gift and comforts that Christ gives? It's a hard question. I'll say it again. Does the joy that you have for Christ come from simply having Christ? Or does this joy come from the gifts and comforts that God gives us? The reason this is hard is because God likes to give us gifts and bless us. And so I am not telling you that I'm calling you now to hate those gifts and blessings. I am simply asking you to really do an investigation and to say, when I think about who God is, and when someone asks me, do you truly love this God? And if I said yes, what would be the underlying reason for it? Is it actually because when I think about God himself, who God is, that that's who I love? Or are they, is it just simply because of the blessings that God gives us? Is there anything in this life where if I said, I'm taking that from you, you would feel your joy totally robbed? You see, our health is a good thing. But if I said, I'm taking your health, would you say, I wouldn't be able to wake up in the morning if my health, my joy would be robbed? Our money is a good thing. Our money and finances are meant to be used to expand the kingdom for God's glory. But if it was taken away from you, would you find that your joy was fully taken away from you. Our joy is only linked to Christ's death on the cross. By the way, having this joy doesn't mean you're expected to wake up every morning the way Scrooge woke up. Remember the morning after the three ghosts visited him? There are times in this life where we are certainly called to be mourning, to, to actually weep over the fallen and dark of this world. But here's what this joy allows you to do. Ready? In the middle of those times, and I think this is what John Piper was talking about that he could cling to. Can we echo the words with Psalm 30 that says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. I always have it. That joy never goes away, regardless of the circumstances. Anything can be thrown at me. And yes, I may respond 
sinfully sometimes, but at the end of the day, that source of hope that I have, I know that I'm going to come back to cling to that because that is the only source that is going to be consistent in your life. That's why we're saying this is the source uh, that you could cling to because it's foolish to cling to anything other than Christ because everything else is finite. Everything else will fail you. And so this cross of Christ is the one that you cling to because it's the only one that will last. And so now an encouragement for you before we move on to our third and final point. I want to say that as Christians, you have this joy. I know it sounds like I'm challenging you, but at the same time, I want to remind you that this is a fruit of the Spirit. You actually have this joy, that this source of hope, that's why we call this uh, today the fruits of hope, because this is a fruit of that hope. So if you find that you have this hope of Christ, then in addition to being challenged, also take comfort, because you have this joy at your disposal. And then what we also see in our third and final point from the text in 1 Thessalonians, is that we have endurance. This section 1 through 10 that I read has a phrase, we give thanks, and then everything under that is kind of connected to that phrase, we give thanks. So when Paul says we have the steadfastness of hope, or also translated endurance, uh, Paul is saying he's thankful for it, because Paul is sure that the hope inside the believers he's writing to is one that will last and is eternal. You've heard us say this in this series, that this hope is eternal. And so Paul is saying he is sure of this. And two things about endurance that that we see in this passage. First, and and this might not be what you expect with endurance, because I think we use this often a different way, you have endurance in salvation. That's what we see first in this text. And then second is that you have the endurance to battle sin. So I'm going to speak to now those who are maybe questioning Christianity. Those who... Uh, you, maybe you've kind of tapped your foot in and out of church over the last couple of years, but, but you have never actually trusted in Christ for this. This is a great passage to look at because it talks about salvation and talks about how salvation comes from God alone. And it might be described to you differently than everything that you've heard about how salvation works. You see, that phrase, for we know brother loved by God, the words brother and loved in the Greek are one word. And it's a tense that's just the perfect tense, which just simply means it's a completed action. So what Paul is saying is that this hope, this endurance that you have, it's actually because you have been loved by God. It's actually a sure and a set thing. And so it first starts with saying your salvation, the endurance that we're talking about, that endurance is actually going to see you through salvation. There was an illustration that I read in a book in college. I can't remember what book. I think it was uh, Putting Amazing Back into Grace by Michael Horton. Uh, It's a great book. And he describes a scenario of what this looks like. He said, you can picture a father and a son who are are hiking, and they're they're holding hands, and um, uh, the dad's holding his hand, and they're they're going about a a dangerous part of the course, right? Maybe has some big cliffs and rocks, and the son starts to slip and fall. And you can imagine what would happen in the middle of that, right? If they're both holding hands, both grips tighten, and then the son doesn't fall. And then the son is probably thinking, man, that's a good thing I held my dad's hand, otherwise I would have fallen to my death. But is that really what's happening? You see, we know in reality, if a father and son are holding hands and a son slips, uh, the son's grip is actually pretty irrelevant to save him. It's totally irrelevant because the father's grip is going to be the one that actually saves him. And friends, this is what it's like in salvation. This is the endurance 
that we're talking about. It is not by your own doing. It is not by your own grip. It is by the sovereign hand of God. It's different than a marathon. Okay, I've had the desire to run a marathon, especially this year, and I didn't sign up for it yet because I can't run a marathon right now. And nothing about my training plan lately shows that I'm ready to run a marathon. And and so here's what this would be like. Ready? Just, Just bear with me. This would be like someone coming to you and saying, hey, sign up for that marathon because I can see the future and I promise that you're actually going to be able to finish it. I have a way to see that it's not going to be by your own endurance. If someone told me that, I'd sign up tomorrow. Like if I knew that I could actually run for all 26.2 miles, I'd sign up. And that's what salvation is. That's what this endurance is. It's, it's God the Father saying, I'm going to have you. I'm going to have your salvation. You are in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are protected by Christ through your salvation. But then the natural question, so often what comes next? You can think of it, right? It's, well, then why does it matter how we live? Right? If my salvation is secure, if I can never lose it, if this is all about what Christ did for me, and there's nothing that I can do that takes it away, then why wouldn't I just have fun tomorrow? And Paul responds to this in Romans 6, where he says, um, sorry, got lost. He said, by no means. Like, that's not what a Christian actually would do. And then even in our text, he goes there as well. Look what he says at the bottom. He says, you will have endurance to actually fight idols and to serve the living and true God. And so he anticipates this question. He knows that a Christian who is ultimately putting in their source of hope in Christ will not ask that question, will not say that the gospel then gives me freedom to sin, but it actually gives me freedom of endurance in battling sin. We've said this before, that none of us are neutral in our worship. None of us are kind of on the fence and we're deciding to worship God or, or deciding to worship something else. We're all worshiping something. And so that's what this looks like. And so when Paul says that you need to turn your face away from idols and serve the living and true God, what he's saying is that you need to turn your face away from serving false and dead gods, right, and actually set your gaze on the living and true God. Friends, what true gospel endurance looks like is it's understanding God's justice and sin, but also his grace and mercy. You cannot separate those two. Understanding God's justice and sin and grace and mercy. God's justice and sin and his grace and mercy has something to say for every area of your life. No area is left untouched. God's justice and sin has something to say for what you're doing at midnight when everyone else is asleep. God's justice and sin has something to say for that number that you're putting down in your tax form. His justice and his sin, justice and sin and grace and mercy has something to say for every little interaction that you have with your father, your mother, your husband, your wife, your kids, that stranger at the person. It informs everything and has something to say. And if we're unwilling to do this, it means that we're underestimating one of two things. Either we're underestimating the extent of the cross, or the extent of our sin. It means that either we're saying, my sin's not that bad, right? My sin's not that offensive. God has has better things to do than to worry about these things that I'm doing. Or, it says, can the cross really cover that? 
Is the cross really big enough? There's the sins that I'm okay mentioning in brief accountability conversations, but those sins that no one knows about, that it is so dark that I hate to even think about it, can the cross actually cover that? And hear me that so often, if we're not willing to go here with repentance, it's that we're refusing to acknowledge one of those two things. Either we're refusing to acknowledge what sin is, or we're refusing to talk about the extent of the cross, that it's bigger than any of us realize. And we cling to verses like 1 John 1 that says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's that simple. It's not made to be complicated that we see our sin and that we recognize that God forgives us. All right, in conclusion, I want to say something about this thrill of hope that we've been talking about for the last few weeks. If you're like me, this idea of the thrill of hope, is, there's sometimes like an elephant in the room with it. You see, what makes something a thrill is often when something uh, either changes trajectory in like direction or, or speed, right? Like a roller coaster. You think about a roller coaster, often we think of as a thrill. Either changes speed drastically or changes direction. If we hear good news about how someone's doing, it's because a trajectory, a way that certain things were headed, now suddenly changes course and we're excited. That's a thrill. And so we have to ask this morning as we conclude, why is this hope not a thrill for us? Want to hear what I think the answer is? This is the thrill, okay? This was a spiritual condition that you were in before Christ. You were lying in a grave six feet under the ground, buried. And then Christ came into the cemetery, dug you up six feet under, opened your casket, opened your eyes, and then said, do you want to get out of here? Do you want to get out of here? And then he came into this earth as a baby, not even potty trained, lived a perfect life, paid the death that we couldn't. Now he's standing over the casket and is actually saying, hey, let me switch places with you. That's what makes a weary world rejoice. That's how this hope becomes a thrill. And I have to say that if that's not a thrill to you, here's what you have to do. Ask yourself, how much do you think you actually need God? Is God some kind of idea, some kind of life coach that you say, I'm occasionally going to bring him in as a consultant when I'm kind of not understanding how to do things? Or maybe God for you is, is like the Siri button where he occasionally answers a question, gives some direction, but a lot of times it's just really not that helpful. Friends, or do you recognize that you needed God to stand in between God the Father and your sin and take on the full extent of the shame of your sin on the cross. That's how much you need God. And so if this isn't a thrill for you, this is not meant to scare you or an indictment, I'm simply asking that you look to that hope, that you think about what Christ did for you on the cross. And that's what makes a weary world rejoice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are constantly not believing this. If I confess, it's something that's a struggle, God, to, to truly believe that all of our sin is forgiven and that you are working in our lives because of the cross of Christ and his righteousness and that we are going to be different in five years and ten years because of it. God, it's one that, that is hard because we, we look at our everyday lives and it's so difficult to see long-lasting change. God, my prayer for, for everyone in this room is that 
the confidence of the blood of Christ would come in and would inform and minister to our hearts that says you are changing. That says we're, we're different because of what you're doing in our lives. Because of the source of hope, it does not come empty, but it comes with the promise of the Holy Spirit coming in and changing us. God, do all that we ask. We pray it in the name of Christ. Amen.